Father, we know that the only way that our souls may be well with Thee is to come to Thee through Christ. And we pray, Father, that today would be the day for those who do not know Christ in a personal saving way that they would come to Him for He alone is able to save. We thank You that in Him we have the forgiveness of all of our sins, knowing that He came for the very purpose of saving His people from their sins, saving them from an eternal hell. And we pray, Father, that as we study Your Word today, that we would have greater insight of this truth so that it might stir our souls to worship You in a manner that is pleasing to You. We thank You, Father, that You have given us Your Word that teaches us truth. Truth about life and truth about death. We thank You that You have given us warning after warning after warning in Scripture. And we pray, Father, that we would heed the warnings that You give us. Do not allow us to be ignorant of them. Do not allow us to ignore them. But Father, drive them into our heart so that we might know them and obey them. We pray, Father, for our sister churches throughout the world today that as they meet and gather, that many would come into your kingdom and that your children would grow in grace. We pray for those who are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray that you minister to them and bring them back to us quickly. We pray, Father, that you would bless those who are in need of healing. We thank you that you are the great physician, and we pray, Father, that you would do that which would bring most honor and glory to your name. We pray for those who need comfort. For we know that you are the great comforter, that you were able to carry those who go through the valley of the shadow of the death. We pray also, Father, for those who would be away, that you would watch over them and bring them back to us safely. And especially, Father, for those who would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual needs, that you would work in their lives to bring about a desire to be with your people, worshiping together on this day that you had given us, we call the Lord's Day. And we pray all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You would turn with me again to Luke chapter 16 as we continue to look at this story that Jesus gives us. And I want to read verses 24 and following. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great guff fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, and nor can those from there pass to us. 
Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that they may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes from, to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though, they, though one rises from the dead. Most people do not enjoy talking about death. They would much rather talk about joyful things. And I think we, most of us fit into that particular category. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 7, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. And the living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Some, even here today, rather not hear this story about the death of the rich man and Lazarus. You'd rather hear something else be preached. You don't want to be confronted with death and hell. The doctrine of hell is very unpopular today and very few sermons are preached on it from pulpits and that's sad. There are many even that deny the doctrine of hell. Now the thought of people being put into such a place for all eternity is very unsettling to us as human beings. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, said, It is a doctrine which the natural heart revolts from and struggles against, and to which it submits only under the stress of authority. The church believes the doctrine because it must believe it or renounce the faith in the Bible and give up all hope founded upon its promises. How true that is. And there are those churches that deny the doctrine of hell and therefore they must give up the belief of the Bible because they deny what the Bible says. So they cannot be called a Christian church. Death is the destiny of every single one of us in this room. Scripture speaks about three score and ten years but some will die much earlier than that and others will live longer than that. But yet all of us, one day, if the Lord does not return, will enter into heaven or hell when we take our last breath. As the scripture says in Hebrews 9:27, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So death is something that each one of us should think about long before it comes and touches us. 
And we must realize that God does not promise any of us tomorrow. Not a single person here knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. We do not know what tomorrow holds. So we must always be ready. And this is one of the reasons why we are studying this story that Jesus gives us in such detail. Because it's one of the most important things that we can put our minds upon. We understand that God in His Word has clearly revealed to us that there is a heaven and that there is a hell and we must prepare for one or the other. Now, if we don't seek to prepare for one or the other, then we will find a sad ending in our life. We must not have the attitude that this rich man had. He was consumed with self. He was consumed with the things of this world. He was consumed with the riches that he had. He gave no attention whatsoever to Lazarus who sat at his gate. He gave no thought to the afterlife. His mind was a worldly mind, and therefore as a result of that, it led him to be cast into an eternal hell. The rich man ended up separated from both the world, that which he loved, his riches, as well as from the presence of God in his life. He had no comfort whatsoever. His soul, as we see, was in torment. And he could never find any relief. Many verses in Scripture teach us about hell. Revelation 14.10 tells us that the damned are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Isaiah 66.23 speaks of the suffering of worms that will never die and a fire that will never be quenched. Scripture seeks to give us an unimaginable understanding and picture of those that are suffering in hell. It does that to warn us of that place. Mark 9.43 speaks of the fire that will never be quenched. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of eternal destruction and shut out of the presence of God. Matthew 13.50 speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are just simply a few of the verses in Scripture that speaks of this terrible place. Now as we continue to look at these verses, I want to give you four questions and answer them. First, why did the rich man go to hell? Second, why is there a hell? Third, what is hell really like? And fourth, what keeps a person out of hell? So first, why did this rich man in this story go to hell? Our Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, says the soul of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and under darkness reserved to the judgment of that great day. In verse 24, we see, Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. We see that this rich man called Abraham his father. He thought 
that he was in the covenant. He thought that he was okay. And he is shocked that he finds himself in hell. Now, if you look at the story, you look at this man, he really doesn't appear to be what we would say a wicked man. He's not a Hitler, in other words. So therefore, why is he in hell? Well, as the 1689 says, the souls of what? The wicked are cast in hell. So therefore, he must be a wicked man. So why is he called a wicked man? There's many in hell, though they were thinking that they were covenant children, just like this man. He thought he was a covenant child because he was a Jew and Abraham was his father. And we see that there are many in that particular condition, suffering in hell, because they thought they were good enough to get in heaven. He thought that Abraham was his father. He thought that everything was okay between him and God, and that when he would leave this world, he would go into the presence of Abraham. He ignored his sinful condition. He ignored that he was a wicked man in the eyes of God, even though in the eyes of man, he may have been looked upon as, quote, a good man. In the eyes of God, he was a wicked man. There's a particular tract that we often hand out as we go into the neighborhood around here in Castlewoods, and that is a bad record and a bad heart. Matter of fact, I just ordered a hundred of them and they came in this past week so that we might be able to use that in the crusade when we are counseling people. And I want to put a plug in about that. We would love to have as many as possible come this afternoon to be able to be trained so that you can participate in the crusade and be a counselor. We need people to be counselors that understand the gospel that understand how to present to individuals, first and foremost, that they have a bad record, that they have a bad heart, and they must first and foremost deal with that bad record and deal with that bad heart. If we don't present to them the bad news before we present the good news, we will be deceiving them. Mark Dever, who is pastor at Capitol Hills Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., said... How many churches are full of people who have been psychologically pressured but never truly converted? Now, I say that is because I don't want this crusade to bring that about, to where people are psychologically pressured and never truly converted. That's why I want us to have as many counselors as possible when this crusade comes about. And we have to understand what the scripture speaks about. In Matthew 23, 15, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel over land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourself. Twice as much the son of hell as yourself. They had deceived him. What is the worst position that a person can be in? Well, it's thinking that you are truly converted when you are not. Because if you think you're truly converted when you're not, then you see no need to repent of your wickedness and come to Christ. 
And that is not what we want to happen at this crusade. We don't want people to come forward and think because they came forward and because they prayed a prayer, because they did something, that they are converted. So it's up to us to be as faithful as we can to make sure that we present the gospel to them and make sure that there's true conviction of sin and true salvation. Otherwise, we tell them to continue to seek the Lord. The Pharisees simply told their followers to do this and to do that and to keep the laws that they had come up with. I've shared with you before that they had 613 different laws. 365 of those laws were negative and 245 of them were positive. And they pressed those 613 upon the people and they said, if you do these things, then you're okay in the sight of God. And there were many of them that thought that they were okay in the sight of God because they did what the religious leaders said do. We have religious leaders similar to that in our day, and we must be aware of them. There are those who are wolves in sheep clothing, and we must make sure that we do everything in our power to expose them so that they do not continue to deceive people and lead them astray. Today, people are told that if they do this or that, then they will be Okay, let me read what someone sent to me. Well, did I put it? Yes, there it is. I almost thought I didn't put it in my Bible. This week, a pastor sent me this pertaining to the altar call. He says, if an altar call is given in the average church and you come forward to accept Jesus Christ for any of these reasons, you're coming because God has a wonderful plan for your life. You're coming because He don't want you to go to hell. You're coming because you have decided to try Jesus. You're coming because you're convinced God is going to keep you well. You're coming because you want to be wealthy. You're coming because your friends are coming. You're coming because you want to be accepted by others. You're coming because it's time for you to try something different. You're coming because you've been caught in something and need a way out. You're coming just to be coming You might as well stay in your seat. You might as well go home. Without real conviction, real remorse over your sin, you're just blowing in the wind. Real conviction comes from God. Real remorse over sin only comes from God. And we must understand that. We must let God do the conviction. We must let God do the conversion of sinners to Christ. Because when God does that work, then one truly becomes a child of God. Scripture says in Jeremiah 31, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. That is what God does. God is the one that brings them into the covenant. God is the one that brings about salvation. There is literally billions of people in hell who were church members, who came for the wrong reason. They thought they had their ticket to heaven, but they will be shocked when they find themselves in an everlasting hell, just like those that we studied about a number of months ago there in Matthew chapter 7. They will curse those who deceived them as they suffer in their misery. And it's our obligation to speak the truth, the good news to people so that they might flee from their sins into the arms of 
Christ. That is our obligation to show people what true salvation is from the Scriptures. And this story, Abraham, is represented or represents Christ. For all judgment is committed to Christ Himself. And these are Christ's words that are spoken here by Abraham. And it reveals to the rich man that his only hope in escaping was in Christ. And now it was too late. He had his opportunities while he lived on earth. He was blessed by God with so much that God had given him. God had been gracious to him while he lived on earth. But instead of turning to God, he turned away from God and forgot him. And he was consumed with the things that he had and consumed with own self-interest in his life. And his riches had become a stumbling block to him. As Mark 10, 25 says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now that's not saying that a rich man cannot enter the kingdom of God. But it's easier for an eye, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now can a camel go through the eye of a needle? No. It's talking about a needle a regular needle, it's impossible. And it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God apart from God's grace. He must humble himself before God. He must be willing to give up everything, all of his riches, just as Jesus told the rich young ruler when he came to him and he asked him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he told him, go and sell all you got and come and follow me. He was unwilling to do that. He was unwilling to give up the worldly things for Christ. And he went away sadly. One of the reasons why so few people are coming to Christ today in America is because we are a rich nation. We are satisfied. As Revelation 3.17 says, because I say to you, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the mindset of America, consuming all that this world has. As we were traveling back from Greenville, South Carolina the other day, we went by and visited my wife's brother and we went out on the lake there And as we went around the lake, the thought entered my mind, all of these people, these million dollars homes, some as high as six, seven million dollars, they have it all, people would say. Boy, I'd love to have those homes. I'd love to have the boat. I'd love to be on the lake. That's what people would say. They're consumed with that. And being consumed with that keeps you from Christ. Now, I'm not saying that everybody on that lake was unconverted. But the likelihood of the majority of them being converted is slim because they are consumed with their wealth and they have their eyes on their wealth instead of on Christ. There will be many, quote, good people in hell, religious people who will be crying out in torment just as this rich man did because they saw no need of repentance when they were here on earth. They saw no need of coming to Christ, and all they could do is boast in their worldliness. 
They are in hell because they rejected God's plan of salvation and they loved this world instead of God. Second, why is there a hell? Because God is infinitely holy and just and He cannot allow rebellious, sinful lawbreakers to go unpunished. He created this place for those who reject Him, who reject His sovereignty, reject Him as God, as Lord. Man's rebellion and sinfulness doesn't allow him into the presence of this holy God. Now, originally, God created hell for the devils and his demons. But due to man's fall, he is included with the devils and the demons because he is a rebel against God just as they are. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now what was their sin? He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. How can you not read this passage and connect it to this passage here in Luke chapter 16? Because the rich man had failed in doing all of these for Lazarus. He did not feed him. He did not give him drink. He did not take him in. He did not clothe him. He did nothing whatsoever to help Lazarus. And now he is suffering in an eternal hell. R.C. Sproul said, It's difficult, even as Christians, to accept the reality of hell. We would rather stand with the wicked than rejoice with God's righteous judgment. Justice. That is because we still have far more in common with Adolf Hitler than with Jesus Christ. We are not consumed with the holiness of God, but we are still bound by unresolved inner guilt. Thus, it is easier to excuse sinners than to champion the judge. Of all the earth. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying because of our sin nature, because we still are bound to our own sin, we have a tendency more to side with the sinner instead of with God who is holy. We, in our minds, say, how in the world could God send sinners to such a terrible place? So see, we side with the sinners. Well, if you understand God and you understand how holy He is, then you understand why He has to send sinners to an everlasting hell. Every lawbreaker is a sinner, is wicked, deserving a punishment. And the punishment, of course, depends upon the crime. See, there's degrees of punishment. Now, children, I think you understand that. 
that there's different punishment for different things that you often do that your parents get on to you for doing. Your parents may be like my wife did and made a chart and she would put up on that chart how many paddlings they would get if they did certain things. Now, of course, if it was lesser, they got lesser paddling. If it was a greater sin, then they got greater paddlings. Well, God does the same thing. God has degrees of punishment. For instance, a person murdering another person, we see that God says that person's life should be taken from him here on this earth. Unless, of course, you live in California. But there are those that um, seem to reject God's word. And of course, you wouldn't give the same punishment for someone who murdered someone as someone who was speeding. Again, unless you were in California, they might give the same punishment. I'm thankful that we're not in California. But sinning against a thrice holy God deserves the greatest punishment. Because of who He is, because He is infinitely great, majestic, and holy. He is infinitely honorable, and He is the highest authority. Therefore, when man sins against God, he demands the worst penalty for man. And that penalty, of course, is death and to be cast in everlasting hell. Now, as a finite human being... We cannot pay our sin debt, even in hell, to this infinite God. Only an infinite being can pay that penalty. Therefore, hell is the consequence of man's rebellious behavior, of man's wickedness. To be able to pay that penalty which must be paid forever and ever and ever. It isn't only what man deserves, but it's just and it's fair because man's sin is against an infinitely holy, majestic God. So what I'm saying is that it's an infinite crime. So therefore, the penalty must meet the payment. And there isn't Any small sins against a holy God, all sin is rebellion against this God. Therefore, all sin deserves eternal punishment in hell. The scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. Third, what is hell like? Now, I've already mentioned some of the things We see it in this particular passage that we've been looking at. And Scripture, of course, is using symbolic language when it speaks about hell. Now that doesn't mean that it's not as real and terrible place as what we read about. Listen again to what R.C. Sproul says pertaining to what hell is like. He says, A breath of relief is usually heard when someone declares hell is symbolic for separation from God. To be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to the independent person. The ungodly want nothing more than to be separated from God. 
their problem in hell will be not separated from God, but it will be the presence of God that will torment them. In hell, God will be present in full divine wrath. He will be there to execute or to exercise His just punishment of the damned. They will know Him as an all-consuming fire. Perhaps the most frightening aspect of hell is its eternity. People can endure great agony if they know it will ultimately stop. In hell, there is no such hope. The Bible clearly teaches that the punishment is eternal. The same word is used in both eternal life and eternal death. Punishment implies pain. Mere annihilation, which some have lobbied for, involves no pain. Jonathan Edwards, in preaching on Revelation 6, 15 through 16, says, Wicked men will thereafter earnestly wish to be turned to nothing and forever cease to be that they may escape escape the wrath of God. Hell, then, is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a suffering torment from which there is no escape and no relief. Understanding this is crucial to our drive to appreciate the work of Christ and to preach His gospel. When we read these words about how terrible hell is, if that does not motivate us as Christians to be evangelistic, I don't know what will. To think about the possibility of those that we know, those that we love, going to such a place should spur us on to preaching the gospel to being faithful in sharing the gospel with others. The rich man said, I am tormented in this flame. This fire, this flame is the wrath of God operating upon his sinful soul, his guilty conscience, his self-condemning heart. He is confronted with his sins for eternity. Nothing is more painful to man than to be tormented by this misery and this agony over his sinfulness. R.C. Sproul continues and he says, Do you believe that hell is a literal fire where people are burning in torment? Do you think there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? Darkness and a place where worms never die? He responded to this and he said, No, I don't. And the student had a sigh of relief, but he then said, I think a person in hell would do everything in his power to be in a lake of fire rather than in the real hell that he will experience. Do you hear what he's saying? 
In other words, the symbolic language that talks about fire and worms that never die and you go on and on, that is not even giving an accurate picture of the real hell. That should cause us to understand just how bad it is. And hell separates man from all the goodness and mercy and grace of God. And he's under the wrath of God, which we are not able to comprehend on this side. We see this misery led this rich man to cry out for mercy. Matthew Henry says, The day is coming when those that make light of the divine mercy will beg hard for it. Oh, for mercy, mercy, when the day of mercy is over. It's too late. It was too late for the rich man to beg for mercy on this occasion. Why did he desire mercy now? It was due to his torment. He had no desire for Christ. He just wanted to be relieved of his pain. He had no desire to worship the triune God. His desire was still based upon his selfishness. And he pleads for just one drop of water. He doesn't even mention his sin or his need for forgiveness. He just wants relief from his torment. And we see Abraham's reply reveals that the wicked will not have their punishment relieved one bit. Matthew Henry says, The damned in hell shall not have any the least deduction or ease from their torment. In this life alone, we are able to take the opportunity to seek the streams of mercy that are offered. But if we reject those streams of mercy offered by God here on this earth, don't expect any mercy whatsoever in hell because you will not receive it. While we are alive, we are to ask and it shall be given. But if you reject that offer now, it will be too late later. He's reminded, the rich man is, of God's common grace he received here on earth. There in verse 25 when he says, Son, remember that in your life you received your good things. And he did. He received so many good things, the riches and homes and clothing and serving and house and all those things he received from the Lord, which he selfishly consumed on himself. This only caused his torment there in hell to be even more painful. The memories of those in hell will be their tormentor. Son, remember how painful this is for him. See, the scripture teaches us to remember your creator, your redeemer, God's law, His salvation. But instead of remembering these things, they put it out of their memory. Suppress the truth. But in hell, they will not be able to put it out of their memory. 
There will be the remembrance of those times that they rejected the gospel time after time after time. They will remember their sin. They will remember the messages they heard Sunday after Sunday after they heard and they rejected it. They will remember God's common grace that was shown to them in so many ways, how He blessed them so wonderfully, yet they wasted it upon their sinful lifestyle and their carnal living. What a dreadful request when they hear this ringing in their ear, Son, remember. They will seek to put it out of their mind, but they won't be able to. It will be like a constant ringing in their ear that they cannot stop. And they will see that the justice of the dam is that which God has brought about. And they have no excuse whatsoever. They can only blame their self and that in itself will gnaw at their very soul. What a terrible, terrible consequence to their sin. Fourth, what will keep a person out of hell? Notice what he says there in verses 27 through 31. Then he says, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, no, Father Abraham, But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. We see that the rich man begs Abraham, Send Lazarus. Send him to my father's house and warn my five brothers not to come to this place. It's too terrible. Have you ever thought, why does he desire Lazarus to go and speak to his brothers? Well, evidently he knew that Lazarus was a righteous man. Some way or another he understood that Lazarus might be able to persuade them that they would listen to Lazarus because they too had seen Lazarus at his gate. And he knew that Lazarus was honest and that Lazarus would share the conditions that the rich man was in, the conditions there in hell, and how his love of money and lack of mercy toward others condemned him to this eternal hell. And therefore he hopes that the presence of Lazarus and the knowledge of him being there in hell would cause them to change. He did not want his brothers to experience his destiny because he had natural affections for his family. But this request was partly due to self-love For his presence in hell would only add to the torment, their presence in hell would only add to the torment and the misery of his life. For he had done nothing whatsoever to warn them about hell while he lived on earth. 
And therefore, he was guilty of not sharing with them the gospel while he was on earth. And therefore, his torment would be greater. Abraham denies the request. Such request from hell will not be granted. For prayer has to have a mediator. And only those who know that mediator, Jesus Christ, are able to pray to that mediator and prayers to be heard and answered. Abraham points out that you, they have the Word of God, which is, of course, the ordinary means of conviction and conversion. And they needed to read it. They needed to study it. They needed to listen to the preach word. It was their responsibility to have their ears hearing the word of God and their eyes reading the word of God. For God's normal way of salvation is through the preaching of the word. And he says there in verse 29, let them hear. Let them hear it. But he doesn't see the sufficiency of Scripture. As many today, they don't see the sufficiency of Scripture. And we see that there in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's saying they're not going to repent if they just simply hear the Word of God, simply hear the preaching. This common grace was given to him and he squandered it. He knows that his brothers are like him. And that this truth of the scripture which is found in the Old Testament was enough to teach them salvation. But they would not read it. They would not listen to it. They would not submit to it. So he doesn't see the sufficiency of scripture because their hearts are just as hard as his. And they will reject it. Like him, they trust in their self for their own righteousness. And he says they, they need to be shocked to reality is what he's saying to Abraham. Send someone from the dead. In other words, scare them into repentance. Do something new. Do something out of the ordinary. That'll get their attention. Matthew Henry says, Foolish men are apt to think any method of conviction is better than that which God has chosen and appointed. Man, do we live in that day today. So many have that particular mindset. They think that any method of conviction is better than what God has chosen to show us. God's way of showing us is through the preaching of the Word. That's why so many churches now use drama. And other things to try to get people to repent. And they have forgotten what God has said. They think that preaching is not enough. But yet God tells us clearly that it's through the preaching of the word that people come to Christ. We also see that he's constantly asking for even a great miracle to take place. Look at that response there in 31. Now, of course, we know that the Jews did not receive what Moses and the prophets had said about Jesus Christ. Instead, they rejected, even though it was clearly spoken to them by Christ himself. They hardened their hearts against the truth. 
So nothing will persuade them and bring them to repentance and faith, even if someone from the dead came back. Now we know that. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. Remember what happened when they were told that He was no longer in the tomb? They paid the guards to make up a story that someone had stolen the body. They hardened their heart against the very evidence of Christ doing what He said He would do, that He would come out of the grave on the third day. They had heard it and they rejected it. And even when they heard that He had come out of the grave, they continued to harden their hearts against the truth and even lied and paid other men to lie as well. They remained in their hard-heartedness, their stubbornness, their infidelity, and died just like the rich man did. And this reveals how important it is for us to submit to the Word of God, to read it, to learn it, to hear it preached, and understand that when someone attacks the Word of God, they are attacking the very lifeline Rejecting their only hope, which is found in the Word of God. The Bible teaches that all sin deserves death and hell. And this penalty must be paid. And either we pay the penalty by spending eternity in hell, or Christ has paid the penalty on our behalf by taking our hell upon Himself. Paul says in Romans 5, 8 and 9, But God demonstrated His own love toward us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. What wonderful news! Glorious good news! That we shall be saved from wrath through Him, through Christ. Because God demonstrated His love toward us that while we were still in our sins, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Having now been justified. How are we justified? Well, He tells us. By His blood, by His death, by taking our hell upon Himself, He has justified us and saved us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him sin who knew no sin to be sin for us, that while we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Can you imagine that? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him? That we are clothed with His righteousness, that we are accepted as the beloved because of the work of Christ. Though Lazarus was poor and afflicted, he became rich and happy in his rags. For Christ became His Savior, Christ became His Lord. So while he was still on earth, while he was still at the rich man's gate, he was a happy man. Even though he had nothing, even though he had sores, he was still a happy man because he had unspeakable joy in Christ. And as he sat at that gate every day, he was full of joy. From the moment he found Christ, he could apply to himself what Paul says there 
in Romans 8, 38 and following. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or power nor things present or things to come nor height or death or anything other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He knew that. He understood that. He experienced that in his life. Jesus Christ was his and he was in Christ. And he knew Christ. And he knew that he must demonstrate that he was in Christ. So therefore, he bore forth the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, love. All of these things were evident in Lazarus' life. But yet the rich man, Ignored them. And therefore he was an eternal hell. Let me close with the words of Jonathan Edward. Who wrote that sermon. Sinners in the hands of the angry God. He says, O sinner. Consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath. A wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath, and you are held over in the hands of God, whose wrath is provoked and increased as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slither thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you ever have done, nothing you can do, To induce God to spare you one moment. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of the Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your life. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. Heed the words of Edward. Let us pray. Father, your word has given us a picture of this consuming fire in hell. It has given us a visible picture of how great the punishment of sinners not in Christ will be.
and is even at this very moment. Open up our minds to receive this truth so that we will see the free offer of the gospel from Jesus Christ and see that God has demonstrated His love that while we were yet sinners that Christ came to die Father calls us to see that we can have life, that we can have life eternal in Christ if we would just simply repent of our sins and look to Christ who is able to save. Thank you for such a great Savior. Thank you for one that has saved many of us in this room from our sins. And we pray, Father, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would be faithful to share the gospel with others, even this opportunity that we have coming up at the crusade, Father, to tell people of Christ and who He is and call them to repentance and saving faith. May we be faithful. Even today, Father, if you give us opportunities to share the good news, may we be faithful in doing that because we know that people are all around us that are dying and going to an everlasting hell. Cause us to be concerned, to have a desire to share the gospel with them. Use us, Father, to be your ambassadors to your people. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for His sake. Amen.